Let us pray. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. Heavenly Father, we, we pray that thy Holy Spirit may descend upon us now to open thy word to us. May our hearts burn within us. May thy word take deep root within us and bear forth much fruit in our lives. And this we pray in that name which is above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good afternoon, everyone. And so we continue our study uh, put out by our province, the Anglican Church in North America, and also by the North American Lutheran Church, which is a, uh, a biblical uh, Lutheran uh, movement. This particular part is on Holy Scripture. What is the Bible? What is the Bible? The Bible is God's written word given by the Holy Spirit through prophets and apostles as revelation of the triune God in all his fullness. From 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. And so the Bible is God's word written. One point I like to make is this. For those of you who know me, if I were to give you my word that I was going to do something, hopefully you would assume that I would carry it through. Because you, you know that if I give my word about something, that um, I'm going, I am going to see it through. Well, we as, uh, as Christians believe that God has given us his word not only in his son, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, but in the Holy Scriptures. God has given us his word. So then the question becomes, do we trust his word? Do we treat it like a buffet? I believe this, but I don't believe that. I'm willing to uh, acquiesce to this, but not to that. Do we feel we always have to understand God's word? Let it be recorded that my daughter was eight minutes late. Okay. <laughs> so we're talking about the Holy Bible. If I were to give you my word, would you trust that I would see it through? Well, God has given us his word in his son, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, and also in the Holy Bible, the word of God. We are told in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. So it's all inspired by God. God has given us his word. Now, we mustn't think that the prophets and the apostles were writing as if they were uh, robots. Danger. Right? As if they were robots as if God was whispering the Holy Spirit in their ear, no, I said uh, holy, not holly. Oh, sorry. You know, oh, holy, right? Um, that's not how it is. It's divinely inspired, but humanly expressed. Divinely inspired, but humanly expressed. So if you think of uh, different coffee brands, okay, 
if you think of the different flavors of coffee as being different human personalities. Some are regular roast, some are vanilla flavored, and some you have chocolate macadamia nut flavored coffees, right? Sometimes you have caramel flavored coffees. But when those coffee beans, as rough as they can be, are grounded up and placed in the container, so I'm told, <laughs> and you pour water through it, it creates the coffee. Think of the water as the Holy Spirit. So the pure water that you put in is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is poured out into these coffee grounds and comes forth uh, something beautiful, right? Especially at 6 a.m. in the morning, something beautiful, except for Mike, he prefers tea. I hope you can still follow the analogy, okay? All right. And yet, the beans still have something to do with it, right? Right? The, the particular flavor. So if you take the one gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have four canonical gospel narratives. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are all the word of God. They are all God-breathed. They are all um, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we're protected from, uh, from uh, error. This is truly the word of God that is being given to us. Okay, And yet, the flavors of the person still come through. So you think of Mark maybe as a regular roast, right? You think of Matthew maybe as a caramel. You think of Luke as a vanilla. And John is, without a doubt, the chocolate macadamia nut, <laughs> okay? Uh, because it's so rich, right? And it comes from a different perspective. But all are the word of God. Does this make sense as an analogy? All analogies break down somewhat, right? But hopefully it helps us to understand. It's, the word of God is divinely inspired, but humanly expressed. So the personality of the author is not completely lost in how things are articulated or their focus, their particular emphasis, uh, um, um, uh, their particular, uh, what they want to emphasize. So, for example, Mark, uh, his goal is to make sure we understand that the gospel is the gospel, the good news of the Son of God. Matthew is writing primarily for a Jewish audience and wants us to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the one of whom the prophets spoke and wrote. He is the fulfillment of the covenant made by God to Abraham. He is the promised one. The fulfillment of all things. Luke wants us to understand that Jesus is the divine physician. The divine physician who comes into our hearts, into our lives, into our bodies and our souls. Not to tear us down, but to lift us up to heal us. And for John, he particularly wants to convey that Jesus is whom? What's that? The Word of God and God in the flesh. He is God. 
So for John, he wants us to know that Jesus is God. To know Jesus is to know God, the living God. Luke wants us to understand that Jesus is our divine physician. Matthew wants us to understand he is the fulfillment of all the scriptures and all that was promised by God through the prophets and the covenant made with Abraham by God. And Mark wants, Mark wants us to understand he is the son of God. And it's not, these are a matter of emphasis. It's not, a, it's not that um, Mark would deny what John is emphasizing. It's a matter of emphasis. But the particular person still comes through in their writings. The certain way they, they say things. The certain way they say things. If you were, for example, to um, be watching TV and you're doing something and you're flipping the channels and all of a sudden you hear a preacher starting his sermon with the words, glory to God who has given us salvation in his son Jesus Christ. And the people respond, glory to God forever and ever. Who do you think might be on that television? Me, right. That's a Father Michaelism, <laughs> right? Uh, one day I came down, I was just so excited to preach. That's what came out of my mouth. And the next week I did it again. And after the third week, people thought, this is how sermons begin, <laughs> right? All right. So the certain personality, certain words, certain phraseology, terminology still comes through, but it's divinely inspired, but humanly expressed. But it is the word of God. Now, we do believe that the word of God, that it is infallible. There, okay. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit later, but sometimes... Um, the infallible word of God, the truth of God, is not always found on the surface, but sometimes more in the depth of its life. So it's not always on the surface level, but sometimes it's found in its depth. But there is an inerrant truth to Holy Scripture that is being conveyed to us. The example I have often used, and some of you have heard this multiple times, is that if I were to take Sarah and Rebecca to the beach uh, by the ocean when they were uh, three and five, and they looked out at the ocean from the, from the shore and said, Daddy, is that the ocean? If I say, yes, that's the ocean, am I lying? No, that is the ocean. But what they can conceive from the shoreline, what they can see only on the surface, is rather deceiving, isn't it? Regarding the, the majesty, the power, um, the, uh, the, the uh, depth of life, the depth itself of the ocean. They might think just from there, looking at just the surface level, that the ocean is what color? Blue. Unless you're in New Jersey, then maybe. No. If you're from New Jersey, I apologize. Please don't send me an email. I apologize. <laughs> okay. Right, it's blue. They're going to say it's blue. What will their conception be of the size of the ocean? They'll have a concept that this is a little bit bigger than a lake, right? 
But do you think being uh, looking from the, uh, from the shoreline that they can really conceive the size and the depth and the power of the ocean from the shoreline? No. And in fact, I hope he doesn't mind me pointing this out, Mike probably has an understanding of the ocean that many of us don't have in that he served in a submarine. He was truly exploring the depths of the ocean. Depths... Yes, yes. And depths of the ocean that I'd rather just have him tell me about, to be honest, okay? So there is an inerrancy to Holy Scripture, an infallible truth that is completely of God. But it isn't always at the surface level. Sometimes it's found in its depth. And sometimes things can have multiple meanings as well. Okay? And so um, this is why the, the scriptures themselves warn that we should not have what? Our own interpretation of scripture. The scriptures actually warn against private interpretation of scripture. We're not to look at scripture and say, ah, this is what it means um, with ourselves. The lesson today that was the second lesson, it was supposed to be the first lesson and, and, and all that kind of stuff, um, in, from the Acts of the Apostles, from the Acts of the Apostles, where Philip is reading uh, from Isaiah 53. He's reading about the suffering servant. The eunuch, rather, is. The eunuch of Candace, who was the, the queen of Ethiopia. And Philip, this is Philip the deacon, not the apostle, is sent to him by the Spirit. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I? Unless someone explains it to me. And then Philip doesn't give him his own explanation. Rather, what does he share with him? The gospel of Jesus and the faith of the apostles, the apostolic faith, regarding who uh, the author of Isaiah 53 is proclaiming. And then, of course, he shares the good news and baptism. Now, it doesn't say that he does, but we know that this eunuch knows very little, if anything, about Christianity. He's reading Isaiah 53 because he's educated, right? And then once Philip reveals to him the interpretation that has been given to us by God and through the apostles, that is the gospel and the faith of the church, the next thing that we hear is the eunuch saying, what's to prevent, here's some water right here, stop the chariot, what's to prevent me from being baptized? And then Philip and the eunuch go down into the water and the eunuch is baptized. Right. So we know that much of that preaching must have been about holy baptism, joining us to Christ, who is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. But someone could argue that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the author is speaking about someone in that particular time. Or at another time. But sometimes they have multi-layered meanings. And this is why as Anglicans we look back to the early church. What did the early church receive from the apostles? 
that they receive from Christ, who is from the Father. And it's this that we believe. Okay. Any questions about the interpretation or looking at it at the surface level or in depth? Yes. Yeah, Matthew and Luke, most scholars believe, took Mark. Mark was probably written, according to most uh, scholars, first. Yes. Yeah. I, I just want to say one last, do you, is that accurate? I mean, I believe so. I believe it's likely that Mark was written first, and that both Matthew and Luke had Mark as a source, as well as their own particular sources that they had. There's also something called Q, which is, uh, means source in German. Um, there are certain lines in Luke and in Matthew that are not in Mark. But Matthew and Luke are not writing it together. They're not, you know, hey, where'd you put? You, you, you know, they're, they're writing separately. But there are some lines that are absolutely identical right down to the, the, the punctuation. Well, there was no punctuation, but right down to uh, uh, the dot, and uh, so to speak. And so they believe that there was a source that is unknown to us called Q, which means source in German, and that they had this as, as their source. Whether it's true or not, and this is what I was starting to get to, um, is in one sense interesting as far as study, and in another sense is a bit ir irrelevant. Because regardless of the sources, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John were the four gospel narratives chosen by God to be part of the canon of the church. And so we receive them as the inspired word of God. All the rest of it is interesting, right? Um, you, you know, there are people that say that John didn't write the, uh, the, the gospel narrative that bears his name, rather the Johannine community. And if you write that down, Johannine community, because whenever you say it, you sound very intelligent. You know, the Johannine community probably wrote that. Um, and uh, what they would, many scholars would argue that John's disciples um, took what he had revealed to them, which he had received from Jesus, and that they wrote in his name. I tend to not believe that. I tend to believe that John himself wrote it. If somehow, if Jesus were to appear right now and say, no, it's the Johannine community, I'd be like, wow, you're really intelligent, Lord. Um, <laughs> right? I would say, okay, what matters to me, that stuff is interesting for debate. What matters to me is that John was intended by God to be part of the canon and therefore received as his word. And so we apply it as such. Bottom line is, I think, 
it's all very interesting that there's Mark and then yes. Luke and, and Matthew took some stuff from Mark and, yes. and sort of expanded on it. That's all very interesting, but it's irrelevant. Yes, a- a- absolutely. It's, it's irrelevant, secondary, uh, perhaps tertiary, another word that makes you sound intelligent, so I try to work it into my teachings. Uh, so, um, uh, but yeah, what matters is that these were received into the canon by the church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and therefore is the word of God. I'll give you an, another example that some scholars will, will point out. They'll point out that in, and let me see if I can get this correctly now, in Matthew, in Matthew, um, Mary and Joseph are from Bethlehem, um, as Joseph is a descendant of, of David. And therefore the prophecy is fulfilled uh, that he would be born in Bethlehem. Um, however, um, because of King Herod seeking to kill the child, and the whole story of the three wise men, they end up going to Egypt for a time. The, the, uh, uh, Gabriel appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him to take the child and his mother to Egypt, which fulfills the prophecy that the Messiah would be brought out of Egypt. Right? Then they still don't want to return, even though Herod has died, because there, there were still enemies uh, there, and so they go to Nazareth, which fulfills it, the prophecy that he is a Nazarene. In Luke, Mary and Joseph are from Nazareth. They travel to Bethlehem for the census. And so some scholars will point out, ah, the discrepancy. you know. And other people then come back and they write these books um, you know, uh, a thousand pages on how to reconcile the apparent discrepancy. It's not really a discrepancy. And they write the, these whole books on, on this, uh, you know, apparent discrepancy. Ultimately, this is what it comes down to for me. I don't care. <laughs> it, yeah, I don't care. It's the canon. What's true is that Jesus fulfills the, what was spoken of by the prophets under the Holy Spirit. And, um, and that this is what's being conveyed to us by both Luke and Matthew. Another example that's often used is uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus is celebrating the Last Supper, it is the Passover meal. Okay. What does that convey to us? That Jesus is our new Passover meal. He is the Passover, right? Uh, he is the one of whom we partake uh, and are delivered from death uh, unto life. In John, Jesus is being um, uh, killed on the cross at the same time that the lambs are being slaughtered for the Passover that night. So it's the day before. So scholars point this out and, you, you know, look, see, we found this discrepancy. And then again, people come back and they write these books. John was using a different calendar and all this is reconcilable. I find it interesting to a point, but ultimately I don't care. What matters to me is that the inerrant truth of the gospel is this. 
Jesus Christ is our Passover, and he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the Lamb that was slain, whose true sacrifice is able to deliver us from sin and death. And that by partaking of him in the Eucharist as our Passover meal, we share in the benefits of his life, death, and resurrection. Right. So, yeah, so that's, the, that's the good. I'm glad that you brought that up. But for some people, this is, is, is rather scandalous, you know, type things. Uh, if you, I think there's three times in the Acts of the Apostles where the story is told by Luke regarding Paul's uh, trip to uh, Damascus on the road when he encounters the risen Christ. And in one of them, it says that he heard a voice no, the people with him heard a voice, but they saw nothing. In the other, it says that they uh, saw a light, but heard nothing. <laughs> this doesn't concern me. Um, in fact, if anything, it makes it more historically accurate when people try to say that it's being fudged. Um, it, they did a very poor job of it if they were trying to fudge it and make everything line up. And so in one sense, it's more historically accurate that way. Um, but what truly matters is that um, Paul on the road to Damascus encountered the risen Christ. And those with him experienced something as well. And Paul's heart was converted and he was later baptized and became, uh, it was numbered among the apostles. Right? So that's what matters. Um, so the infallible, indefectible truth isn't always on the, the surface level. Sometimes it's found in the depth of the uh, wondrous life of the Holy Scriptures. Okay. And any questions or comments? Okay. All right. Um, I've shared this story before. I'll share it again. And that is that... Um, when I was in seminary uh, many years ago, it was somewhere between 91 and 93, um, there was two uh, seminarians at this divinity school from different denominations who were debating over whether Christ was present in the Eucharist, and one was a Lutheran. And so he said to the other, quoting Luther, Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, what is it that you can't comprehend, right? Which I always kind of liked. Uh, and the other said, well, yes, but Jesus also said he was a door, but he's not an eight-foot plank of wood with a knob, right? And so they were debating back and forth, and as I was walking by, they said, hey, McKinnon, what do you think? And I said, what I think is irrelevant, right? And I say, but this I have received, this I have received, right, from in every age of the church, that in the early church, the, those who received the faith that was revealed by God in his Son, Jesus Christ, through the apostles and the early writings of, of the fathers that were always in continuity with what came before them, that Jesus never meant that he was literally an eight-foot plank of wood with a knob. But he did mean that he was truly present in a very special way in the sacrament of his body and blood. Right? So it's not what Luther said it's not what Father Michael says. It's not what Billy Graham says. It's not what the Pope says. It is what has come down to us from uh, Christ through the apostles 
and their disciples and the early church fathers always writing in continuity. So I receive, for example, of John Calvin, what he writes that's in continuity with what came before him going all the way back to Christ and the apostles and the ancient councils, right? Um, uh, no particular writer or father was ever infallible. Not even, I'm sorry, Gregory of Nyssa, who came very, very close, and that's why the fans are going wild. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so. So the Bible is God's written word given by the Holy Spirit through prophets and apostles as the revelation of the triune God in all his fullness. Now, does that mean that everything, we know everything about God in the scriptures? No. God has revealed to us what he has chosen for us to know. So... For all eternity, I believe that too. We will grow more and more by grace in the knowledge of God, which is his, of course, by his own nature, divine nature. We will never attain to the depths of God's knowledge because there are no ends to the depths of God's knowledge. It's infinite. But we will forever by grace grow more and more in the knowledge of God. But, yeah, but that, no, it was great. That's why Anglicanism has always been careful to say, not that everything is revealed in Scripture, but that all things necessary for our salvation is in Holy Scripture. All things necessary for our salvation is in Holy Scripture. So if somebody adds something and says this is equal to Scripture, that should cause us more than pause, right? More than pause. It has to be biblical. And how do we know what the true interpretation of Scripture is? We look back especially to the early church. Okay. All Scripture is breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. Point two, the Bible is a divine human book. This is what I was getting into. Divinely inspired, humanly expressed. While it was written by humans in their various cultural contexts, God's Spirit sovereignly inspired the writers so that what they wrote testifies faithfully to God's eternal truth. Does everyone get that? I'm going to read it again because that is so, so important for us. The, divine, the Bible is a divine and human book. While it is written by humans in their various cultural contexts, God's Spirit sovereignly inspired the writers so that what they wrote testifies faithfully to God's eternal truth. Therefore, all that we need to know for our salvation is in the Word of God. And that's why we hold the Catholic faith, what was believed by the whole church, East and West, in the early church, but under the authority, not of the teaching magisterium, not of the, the Pope, 
not of anyone else, but of the Word of God. That's why Anglicans and, and these faithful Lutherans um, are Bible Catholics in that sense. We're Catholics who hold the Catholic faith under the authority of the Bible as God's Word. It is first. Would someone look up Psalm 119, verse 160? Psalm 119, verse 160, and just tell me when you have it ready. God intends for Holy Scripture to speak authoritatively to people of every time, culture, and context. Okay, so the Bible is not just something for many years ago or something for our parents or grandparents. It's something for every time, every culture, every context, for now and until the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, the word of God is forever. Go ahead, Mike. Yes. There we go. Say that again, Mike, a little louder. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Endures forever. Endures forever. The word of God. Sometimes people ask, gee, you're so Catholic. Why are you Anglican? And I'll say, first of all, because Anglicans are Catholic. That's number one. But because I love being an Anglican, because we are Bible Catholics. We hold the Catholic faith revealed from the Father in His Son, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit and the Apostles, but under the authority and the primacy of the Bible as God's Word. As God's Word. What is in the Bible? The Bible consists of two testaments. An old English word for covenants or agreements between God and his people. So we say the Old Testament, but we could also say the Old Covenant. Now sometimes uh, people, and I think this has some merit to it actually, even though I don't employ it very much. Some people have said that old and new implies that the old is no longer important because the new has, has come. And the old is important because it's the same Christ who is revealed from Genesis 1-1 until the very last uh, uh, passage in verse in Revelation, right? So some have said that what we should refer to it is as the First Testament and the Second Testament. And I think there's something to, to that. I don't employ it. I still refer to it as the Old and New Testament. Yeah, we disagree with that, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. There. That's enough for salvation right there. Yeah. All you need for salvation is told right there in that book. Yeah. Well, it, so you're saying it's not old, so you're not disagreeing. No, you're, I'm not, you're, I'm not yeah. That's the point. I, yeah. It is Christ who is preached right. from the beginning to the end. And when Christ is preaching, he's only using what we would call the Old Testament. Right. 
Yes. So, I, yeah. I just sort of backed off on that, except until today. I just want to say no, I think, I think we're in full agreement. I have never been able to subscribe to that, so I don't use No, that's what I'm saying, though, is that from Genesis 1-1 yeah. until the last verse in Revelation, it's, it's the same Christ who is preached. Yeah. And that's actually in the 39 articles. One thing I don't like, I'll get one second, Deacon Patricia. One thing I don't like, and this is just my opinion, is, um, so I wouldn't allow it here, is there are some people that will say, let's say it's a reading from Isaiah. They'll say, a reading from the Hebrew scriptures, the prophet Isaiah. I don't like that because to me, the Hebrew scriptures was a course I took where we looked at the Hebrew scriptures in light of the Jewish faith apart from Christ. Old Testament, or First Testament, is looking at it in the light of its fulfillment is in Jesus, right? So I don't, I don't employ that at all, but, yeah. You're looking at a guy who, if you're looking at me, has a real heart for the Jews. That's yeah. For, my, for years, that's been my focus. Amen. Mm-hmm. Maybe what we could do, Deacon Praveen, is where he said what you are teaching is exactly right. Maybe just have that repeat, have the tape get stuck there and repeat for about five or six times, and then we'll move on from there. So, Deacon Patricia and then Diane. Right, absolutely. Yeah. What is somewhat concealed in the Old Testament is fully revealed in the New. And what is fully revealed in the New Testament is, is, is there in the Old, concealed in the Old. But it is there. The first place that the Trinity is alluded to is Genesis 1, verses 1 to 3. Yeah. Thank you. Diane? Right. Right. Amen. Right. Yeah. So that's a good argument for keeping it. So good. Yes, absolutely. One of my favorite, favorite stories, The Road to Emmaus, uh, Luke twenty four thirteen and following. 
What is in the Bible? The Bible consists of two testaments, an old English word for covenants or agreements between God and his people. The Old Testament, which makes up three-fourths of the Bible, contains 39 books from Genesis to Malachi. It's not Malachi, by the way. It's Malachi, okay? And, uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, the New Testament has 27 books running from Matthew to Revelation. What about the Apocrypha then? What about that? Um, so the Apocrypha was written in the intertestamental era, the four centuries before Christ. Readings from them are, both, are in both our Lutheran and Anglican lectionaries, but we use them for edification rather than doctrine. So let me try the best I can to give a synopsis of the uh, Apocrypha. So um, during the 400 years before Christ, okay, um, these are the books that were written by the Jews in the diaspora, that is in the exile, so outside of what we would call Palestine, okay? And they were writing, because they were in a Greek culture, they were writing in Greek. And this was part of their experience uh, as God's people uh, in the diaspora with God, okay? And so they wrote these additional books uh, um, in the diaspora, and they wrote them in Greek, the Greek uh, Old um, uh, Testament was known as the Septuagint. The Septuagint. It was written in Greek. And it includes these additional books. When you, so then, uh, well, okay. But it makes sense that we would stick with the Hebrew. Well, um, uh, the New Testament writers didn't. <laughs> they wrote in Greek. And when they were quoting from the Old uh, Testament, they quoted the Septuagint, the Greek version, which included the Apocrypha, okay? Not from the, the Hebrew uh, version uh, of the Old Testament, which did not include the Apocrypha. Well, you say, well, then, Father Michael, wait a minute. This, these are the books that were written by God's people in the diaspora during the 400 years before Jesus. They wrote in Greek because that was their culture. This became known as the Septuagint, and it was good enough for the New Testament writers. They wrote in Greek too, and then they quoted the Old Testament. They would quote it from the Septuagint. The most um, uh, obvious example is uh, when Matthew says, uh, uh, quoting from the Old Testament, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child. In the Septuagint, the Greek word is virgin. Okay, a virgin shall conceive. In the Hebrew, it's a young maiden shall conceive. Now, the implication is that if she's a young maiden, she's a virgin, but the Septuagint is much clearer. Okay, a virgin shall conceive, and Matthew used it. So you might be saying, wow, this is a pretty good argument for the Apocrypha. I think so, too. I'm kind of an apocryphal guy, okay? Uh, full disclosure. Um, however, 
The other argument comes from the other, the argument from the other side will say, well, the, the New Testament writers wrote in Greek, and when they're quoting the Old Testament, they quote from the, um, from the Septuagint, the Greek version, which included the Apocrypha. There's no direct quote from the Apocrypha in the New Testament. So that's the argument from the other side. Kind of an argument from silence, right? That, well, they weren't, they weren't used, okay? Well, what happened was, um, is that most of the early church fathers um, really used the Apocrypha as much as they used the rest of the Old Testament. But there were certain exceptions. One of them was St. Jerome. St. Jerome, because he studied in, uh, was it Bethlehem or Jerusalem? He studied in Israel, (laughs) what we call Israel. Um, I think it was Jerusalem, but it may have been Bethlehem. But he studied uh, there. And so when he studied the Old Testament, being that he studied in, let's say, Jerusalem, he studied the Old Testament according to the, the Hebrew wordings, okay? And which did not include the Apocrypha, right? So then when Jerome later translated the Greek uh, and Hebrew into Latin, which was called the Vulgate, because at that time Latin was only emerging, and so it was considered the vulgar language. It later became the language of the elite and the well-educated, but at that time it was considered the vulgar language. But he translated the Greek and the Hebrew into the Latin, and it was called the Vulgate. Um, and he separated the Apocrypha from the rest, being that he was Jerome and educated in Jerusalem, kind of putting it at a lower place than the rest of the Holy Scripture. Well, it was the Vulgate that was used in the West, um, and uh, at the time of the Protestant Continental Reformation, Um, many of the uh, theological abuses of the Church of Rome at that time uh, were coming from the uh, Apocrypha. So that put a bad taste of the Apocrypha in the Reformers' mouths, you can be sure of that. But they too were using Jerome's Vulgate. And so uh, when Luther and Calvin... Uh, embraced the scriptures, they embraced the Vulgate, which, because of Jerome's influence, placed it at a lesser place. So where, where does that leave us? Well, as they said here, the Lutherans and the Anglicans, unlike most Protestants, do include it in our lectionary. Okay, so you will hear uh, readings from the Apocrypha in church. Okay, um, however, most will see it uh, as lesser canon or additional canon, or some would say not as canon at all, but important for us to read for inspiration and so forth, um, but not for creating doctrine. Okay, So certain Anglicans will say, like me, it is canonical, but it holds the lowest place on the totem pole, so to speak. Oh, okay, so the official list, canon being the official list that the, uh, the church identified regarding the Old and New Testament under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, and so in that sense, the canon, what's the official list of the books of the Bible? Okay, so there are some Anglicans like me who would say it's canonical, but it's lesser. It holds the lowest place, and we would never establish any doctrine based on it alone. Other Anglicans would say it's not canonical, but it holds a very special place among the non-canonical books. Right, so it's a matter of you're kind of coming from here or there, coming through the you know this door or that door. Um, but more and more now, people are seeing it as very important because it really does connect um, the Old Testament stories with the New Testament in in a, in a unique way. So you're coming. You're, there's a growing appreciation for the the apocrypha. And uh, in seminary, when there was a reading from the Apocrypha, you always knew where someone stood. Because if they, persons like me would get done with the reading and would say, the word of the Lord, meaning this is the Bible, this is canon. And they'd say, thanks be to God. If they were reading the Apocrypha and they didn't, they would say, here endeth the lesson. <laughs> so anyway, Deacon Praveen. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what defines the books of the Old and New Testament. Yes. Was the Apocrypha accepted universally East and West? Because if it was, then it's then yeah. it's Much later. That debate where they were really more concerned with defining what the New Testament was, the twenty seven books of the New Testament. And so they and they just received the, the Old Testament, you know, with the Apocrypha some seeing it as holding a different place, others not. And so later on, these things were dealt with. And so there's the Roman church um, just accepts them, period. The Eastern church accepts them, but at a, as a lesser uh, canon. Anglicanism accepts them, but um, as a lesser canon or as the top of the non-canonical texts, etc., etc. It's... It was not clear. It, it, the Apocrypha has always... And that's why, if you look at the 39 articles, it will say those books of, of which there has never been any doubt. And so it really is kind of a, uh, a little bit of... It has its own history because it was written by the Jews in the diaspora. Yeah. I think evidence would lean it towards being um, the lowest point of the canon. But there are people out there much smarter than I who will probably write me when they see this and will say, oh, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and make the argument the, the other way. But where they're placed and what level of authority they have is not agreed upon by not only us, but um, not by Rome or Eastern Orthodoxy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, First Clement, right, right. It was it was not ultimately received into the canon East and West as an official book of the New Testament um, for uh, very particular reasons. Not that it wasn't considered inspired, um, and so that's why when you read it, you should definitely take it very seriously. You know, yeah, absolutely, Mike. Point 
Okay, so so Mike thinks if 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 he intended for it to be scripture, he would have quoted at least once, at least once from the. Yeah, see, I I think the disciples were sleeping and he was off quoting the apocrypha. As himself, not in the name of an apostle. Yeah, that's exactly right. The Apocrypha didn't fall into the same category, which is it was written by the Jews, you know, in the diaspora, but not in in Palestine. But is that part of the what makes the canon of the Old Testament? And that's still what's debated. Well, and they would say that they were too and that it went with them in the diaspora, that this was a forced exile. And so it went with them, you know. So it's an interesting, see, so look here in this little group, look at the difference of opinions regarding it, right? So you can see why it's been. The good news is that really today it is far less of an issue. Most agree on the importance of the uh, Apocrypha still to, to this day. Um, but it is interesting. You go into certain Protestant churches, and uh, and you, you know you're talking about um, you, you know the scriptures, and you're referring to something in the apocrypha, and they're like, you know, I don't recognize that. Where in the scriptures is it? And then it dawns on you, oh wait a minute, you you wouldn't have it in yours, you know. So it's interesting. Well, we will stop there because I have another meeting to go to. And um, uh, the, uh, but the Apocrypha is certainly interesting. One of my favorites is uh, to be read at funerals. Uh, the souls of the righteous are in the hands of God and no torment shall ever touch them. To the eyes of the foolish, it seems that they're going forth to be their end and their departure to be their destruction, but they are at peace. And I find that a very comforting uh, passage that from the worldview, death is it. But that's not it, right? God has bigger plans. It's a, it's a wonderful passage. So, God bless.